Well, good morning. You know, one of the uh, cruel realities of life is that kids usually end up looking like their parents. They end up looking like us, and they end up acting like us, too. I think most kids probably would like to deny the fact that they look like their parents. They usually do. And the truth is, most parents, at least at some moments, we would like to deny the fact that our kids are behaving in ways that we taught them how to behave, that it's really, it's our fault. You know, I remember when our oldest was uh, just about a year old, and uh, suddenly he started growling at us whenever we would do anything that, that he didn't like. And, you know, that seems kind of funny now. Uh, but he was our first kid, and so and not only were we kind of confounded about why this was happening, but honestly, we were a bit concerned. I mean, we, there, we had so many questions. What were we doing wrong? Uh, you know, why was he doing this? Um, and where did he learn this? Because, you know, we didn't have a dog. And then uh, we're just thinking, you know, how do you go about teaching your kids not to growl? And, and you know... Where do you get help with this kind of thing? I mean, do you talk to your pediatrician or do you go find a good vet? <laughs> you know, I, we just, we weren't too sure what to do. And then one day, um, one of us was uh, doing something rather irritating to the other and she growled at me. <laughs> she growled at me and I suddenly realized that I actually heard this noise rather often. You see, kids learn what parents live. So if my kids are irritating to you, it's most likely my fault. If they growl at you, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> Honestly, I have passed on to my kids far too many rather regrettable traits. Thankfully, they have also fallen under my wife's influence. Their mother has taught them far more than just to growl. Um, and most of all, they have put themselves under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They, they have learned from their heavenly father many uh, good and wonderful things. And so they are surpassing me in, in very many good ways. You see, unlike with human parents, God doesn't pass along any bad habits any character flaws to his children. Um, the more that we become like him, the more that we become like our savior, the better. And the more that we learn like him to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the more of that, the better. The more that we become holy like our God is holy, the more of that, the better. You and I, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to look and we're to, supposed to behave like Jesus. Like Jesus, that, that's a tall order, isn't it? And yet that's what, that's what God is seeking to do in our lives. That is the purpose of his discipline of this process that he has us in that we call sanctification. It's he is seeking to make us as his children to look like him. 
He's trying to shape us and to train us, to change us and, and, and to transform us, to, to change our, our, our behavior, but more than that, to change our hearts so that they might be like his. More and more every day, bit by bit, step by step. There should be a family resemblance between us and our God. And that family resemblance, it should extend into every area of our life, specifically this morning. Uh, we are going to consider how it, it should impact how we act toward and how we view those who are absolutely lost in sin. Our attitude and our intentions toward those who are living in, in open rebellion against God, those who are living in ways that might abhor or disgust us, those who are defiantly running straight toward their own destruction, our attitude and our intentions toward them should match our saviors. In our passage this morning, Jesus confronts the religious leaders with the fact that in the midst of their all-in pursuit of holiness in regard to their attitude towards those who are living in sin, they had become less like their God, not more like him. Well, let's take a look at our passage. Grab your Bibles. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you so that you can, you can become familiar with the passage as we go through it. And open to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Luke chapter 15. Will you do this? Will you stand with me? I'll read. You can follow along. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Luke writes. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I've found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask this morning that you would have your hand on us and you would help us, Lord, to understand, to receive, and to respond to what it is that you would say. 
God, I pray that we would hear this spoken by you to us. And Lord, that we would be changed by it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's seldom a good thing when you're reading your Bible, if you find yourself most closely relating to the religious leaders. And yet, you and I, honestly, we really do have quite a bit in common with them. I mean, after all, they were the ones who were, who were really uh, taking God's word seriously. And so do we, right? And they were committed to, to living lives of holiness, living their lives the way that God wanted them to live them. And, and we are too. And they were willing in that pursuit of holiness to live differently than anyone else was living. You know, us too. And yet, despite those commendable intentions, because they were seeking to attain that holiness by their own efforts, because they saw the law as a tool for their justification instead of a tool that would show them their need for a savior, they ended up becoming arrogant and hypocritical. And we'll see today, instead of having their hearts shaped by the heart of God, they became hard, insular, self-righteous. And in the end, that meant that, meant that and not only they, they lacked God's heart for the lost, but as we'll see next time, it meant that they, they put themselves in the position of opposing God himself. You see, the, the religious leaders lacked God's love and they lacked his willingness to, to rescue those who were lost in their rebellion against God. Those who were living lives that were sinful, to them repulsive, and in reality were destined for destruction. As we look at what Jesus says to these religious leaders, you and I, we should consider what he would say to us today. What he would say to us in regard to our attitude and, and, and what our objective should be as we interact with those who are fully embracing radical sin. How should we view them? How should we interact with them? What is it that we are supposed to be portraying to them? communicating to them. Well, let's get started. Look there, verse one. All the tax collectors and sinners approaching and listening to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes complaining, complaining that this man, meaning Jesus, was welcoming sinners and eating with them. Look at the contrast that Luke sets up there. Look how he pits one against the other. Here we have the tax collectors and sinners who are approaching and they're listening to Jesus. Hey, well, in contrast, the Pharisees and scribes, they're not listening. They're not seeking to draw close. They're just complaining. You know what? It should be a warning sign. If you are more interested in complaining about other people's failures 
than you are in hearing from Jesus what it is that he would say to you about your stuff. You know, complaining has kind of become our, our nation's pastime, hasn't it? It is our culture's most popular hobby. I mean, we complain about the government. Right now, we complain about the weather. In the winter, we'll complain about it then, too. Hey, we complain about the left, and we complain about the right. We complain about just about everything. And a lot of our, becoming, our, our complaining is becoming more and more bitter and angry. It's consuming us. For the religious leaders, though, their complaining wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was why they were complaining. You see, from their perspective, complaining was the right thing to do. They were justified to complain. They were standing against evil. That's how they saw it. So that while Jesus was saying that heaven celebrates and so should we, every time a sinner repents, the religious leaders, they saw things differently. What they would have said would have been something along the lines of heaven celebrates and so should we every time a sinner is condemned. You see, in their minds, God had no interest in saving those dirty sinners. He only wanted them to get what they deserved. Absolute destruction. The religious leaders were convinced that God's singular desire was to destroy sinners. The way they understood God was that it was only after someone turned from their sin and, and, and came in humility and sincerity and was, was bringing with them all the right sacrifices and, and had made a commitment to live the rest of their life now submitted to the law in perfection, only then would God possibly be persuaded to receive them. And so when Jesus begins associating with these sinners, these people who had, who had not yet turned away from their sin, who were offering no sacrifices, who were not living their lives according to the law, it, to the religious leaders, that was scandalous. And the fact that Jesus was sharing meals with them, that was even worse. You got to understand in that culture, in that world, in that day, it, to share a meal with someone was a sign of full acceptance of them. It created a bond, a close connection between those who shared a table together. And, you know, the religious leaders had just shared a meal with Jesus themselves. And so him then turning around and sharing a meal uh, with, with these dirty sinners whom they would never have shared a meal with, it not only reflected poorly on Jesus, now it began to taint their reputation as well. And so we read in verse three that Jesus told them this parable. Now, as we study and as we interpret the parables, Again and again, I want us to keep in mind who the audience is, what the context is. So here Jesus speaks these parables, not to the crowds and not even to his disciples, but to 
the religious leaders. And so the message of these parables is a message to the religious leaders. Let's look at the first one, verse four. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And so remember, parables are simple stories that communicate simple truths. So we need to keep this simple. Well, what's the simple message here? What is the, the simple message that Jesus is giving to these religious leaders? He's telling them that just like a shepherd who goes after his lost sheep, God goes after lost people. God goes after lost people. It's as simple as that. Now, that, that shouldn't have been, but it was a stunning thought for the Pharisees. Think about this. These guys were working so hard to, to earn God's approval. I imagine that they had a hard time comprehending that God could love people who weren't even trying to earn his approval. In fact, people who were doing things that went in exactly the opposite direction, they were doing things that were outright evil. How could God love them? You know, honestly, I think it was even worse than that for the religious leaders. They were working so hard, and yet I bet they had a sense. I bet they knew deep down that despite their greatest efforts, I bet they could, could just sense that even they were not measuring up. Here they were chasing God, trying so hard to earn God's approval trying to, to prove that they were good enough, and yet they could sense their failure. They knew that they weren't. And then Jesus, Jesus begins to tell them that, that God is chasing after not them, but these lost sinners. Had to be shocking to them. Shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been. If they'd known their Old Testament, if they knew the book of Ezekiel, and passages like Ezekiel 34, 12, the Lord tells his people, as a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. God looks for the lost. And what is his attitude towards those who are lost? Well, look at verse five. Speaking of the shepherd, and when he's found that lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together. And he says to him, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. So what is God's heart towards those who have gone astray? Well, Ezekiel 33, just a chapter before, God says this, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. 
God looks at the wicked. He does not long for their destruction. He longs for them to turn back to him, that they might live. God wants all of us to turn from our sin, that we might have real life. So much so that like a shepherd, he will seek out and he will carry back home those who have wandered far. You and I, we need to remember that. You know, we need to remember that we didn't find God, okay? He found us. He found us and he rescued us and he has carried us home. The situation that we are in in life today is not because of our hard work and our good behavior. It's because Jesus rescued us. He rescued us. He found us. All we had to do was to admit that we were lost and to let him carry us home. All that we had to do was admit that we were in sin and we needed him to break us free. All we had to do was submit, be willing to submit ourselves to him. Now, that, that last bit there in verse 7 about those who don't need repentance, there's no one who doesn't need repentance. I mean, the, the, the whole gospel is full of Jesus calling everyone to repent. And so that either is referring to those who have already repented and therefore who are living in a state of continual repentance. You, you've got this by now, right? You understand that you didn't repent once and you're done with it. Repentance is a daily act, isn't it? Repentance isn't something I did before I got saved. Repentance is something that I have come to live doing on a daily basis. It's either speaking of people who are now living in a state of repentance, or I think more likely it's sarcasm. It's Jesus pointing out to these religious leaders their absolute lack of self-awareness, their, their absolute lack of comprehension of their own desperate need to repent of their sin and to cry out to the Savior to rescue them. You and I, we don't want to be like them, do we? We don't want to be like the religious leaders who think that they've arrived. We've got, to, we've got to remember, we've got to understand that the only reason that we are no longer trapped in sin is because we've been rescued out of it. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to the church there in Corinth and he, he goes through this list of sins and then he says to the church, and some of you used to be like this. Every last one of them, Paul is saying. Before Christ, they were trapped in sin. He says, you were like this, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Notice this, will you? 
those three things, being washed clean, being made pure and set apart for Christ, and being declared innocent, being justified. Those are all things that Jesus does for us and to us. It's nothing that we do. It's nothing that we earn. It's nothing that we work to attain. But it all comes to us by the grace of God. You and I, we are saved by grace. We can't... We can't forget that and buy into some sort of arrogant thing that, hey, that we're somehow better, superior, further along. No, we're, we're saved by grace. We haven't earned anything. We've just been rescued. And so when others who are just as lost as we have been, when the Savior reaches out to them and they get rescued too, how can we help? but to join the celebration. Well, if we didn't get it the first time, Jesus gives us a repeat. Look at verse eight. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Again, simple story, simple truth. Look at where the emphasis is. Jesus is pointing out all that this woman does, all the work that she goes to. She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully and she won't quit until she finds it. And just like the shepherd, she is not content to accept the loss and just move on, but rather she is willing to make whatever effort is necessary because she is looking for something that she values. So to the Lord, when he pursues us, he sought us at the greatest of all personal costs. First Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19 puts it this way. You were redeemed from your empty way of life, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. What, what Peter is saying is no money could buy our redemption and no money could offset, but the Savior gave up his own life. He gave up his life for us to pay for our sin. You and I, we have been purchased by God at the greatest possible price. He was willing to pay the ultimate price in order to redeem us, to rescue us out of our sin. And he made that sacrifice, not for those who had already turned, for all who had already come back to him, but he made it for those who were still trapped in their sin. We need to remember the great love of the Savior for us. And we need to remember that he has that same love for those who have not yet turned to him. Even those who today are steeped in just absolutely abhorrent sin, he loves them. He loves them. Now, we have a hard time with that. And I think part of why we so struggle with that is that having been redeemed, uh, we are beginning 
to see things through the eyes of Jesus. Part of that is that we are no longer blinded by sin. We now have begun to see the reality of what sin is and what sin does. We've begun to see that it isn't just a different choice, but it is a choice that leads to destruction, to to death, to limitless suffering, to complete loss, to unending pain. And as we begin to see sin for what it is, we begin to attain a very reasonable hatred of sin. And yet we've got to let that work of beginning to see things through the Savior's eyes go beyond just our understanding of sin and begin to change our understanding of the sinner as well. We can't confuse sin with those who are caught in it. We can't conflate the sinner and the sin. One is to be condemned, sin, and the other is to be rescued, the sinner. That's why Jesus came. He came. He says, it just a few f- chapters further on in Luke 19, Jesus says, the Son of Man, they're referring to himself, he says, came to seek and to save the lost, the lost. Think about that. He came to rescue the lost, not to condemn them, but to rescue them because he loves them. He loves them while they are sinners, just like he loved you and me while we were still trapped in our sin. Have we forgotten Romans 5.8? We've forgotten what it says there, that God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has not only proclaimed his love while we were still stuck in sin, he's proved it. He's proved it. And so when a sinner's rescue is achieved, the Savior celebrates. Look at verse 10, just like the woman who searches for and finds her coin in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God and his angels over one sinner who repents. These parables are simple stories. They communicate to us simple truths. Probably put most simply, we could say this. God seeks to save sinners because he loves them. And when they're rescued, he celebrates. And he has called us, he's called you and he's called me to join him. To join him in celebrating those who who come to the Savior, but also to join him in seeking after those who are still lost in their sin. To join him in loving those who are still lost 
in their sin. So what's our attitude to be towards those who are enslaved in sin? Some of them enslaved to sin that we find repulsive, offensive. What's our aim to be as we interact with those who are just fully given over to depravity? There are a lot of people in that category these days, aren't there? (laughs) There are a lot of people just deeply lost in incredibly perverse sin. They're enslaved and they've become twisted by their sin and they're seeking to spread their wickedness and at times they, they, they attack anyone who would stand against their perversion. How are we to interact? How are we to view them? We're to look like our Father. We're to seek to have the heart of our Savior for them. Instead of viewing them as enemies or opponents, we we need to do what Proverbs 24 tells us, to rescue those who are being taken to death, to save those stumbling towards slaughter. Yes, there needs to be an urgency. Truth needs to be told. They need to be rescued off this path, but it's got to be done with the same love that the Savior has for them. Jesus is calling us to live out our days here on this earth, not pursuing our thing, but pursuing his. And part of that means that you and I are to begin spending ourselves in seeking after lost sinners, seeking after those who are involved in things that abhor us, speaking truth, offering love, and inviting the lost to come home. Jesus has called us to take up our cross, to follow him, to become his ambassadors, and to go and to make disciples. Sometimes I think we picture that as, as if it's just going to be this neat and tidy, beautiful process, but it's messy. Were you a mess when you came to Christ? Would you expect anyone else to be less messy? It's a messy process. We need to seek to look like our dad, to behave like our Savior. so that when those in this world that don't yet know the Savior see us, they'll see a bit of him in us. We'll bear that family resemblance and we'll represent him to this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would shape us, that you would form us. God, I pray that you you would break us of the complaining of just just that whole mentality that is just so unhelpful. 
and you'd give us your love. I pray that our hearts would break for those who are lost, tragically so, who are stumbling toward destruction. That you would give us a heart to speak truth in love, to walk with them in the midst of their mess, to be more concerned with the building of your kingdom and the eternal destiny of those around us than we are with the tidiness of our lives. Challenge us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Equip us, strengthen us, and use us, God, that we might have an impact on this world. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.